Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 14 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in the bulletin that has been provided for you on the website. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. Again, my, my name is Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For, for instance, you could be emotionally conflicted because your daughter just graduated from high school and uh, it's both amazing uh, because she's amazing uh, and it is sad because I mean she's going to be leaving us pretty soon but we are really proud of her so and all the other graduates of our church. Uh, you might also uh, be at home and you've purchased a bunch of slinkies and you're racing them down the steps. Uh, it's something to do during quarantine. Another thing as early on in quarantine, you might have bought, uh, bought some chickens uh, to have in your backyard. And so just in case things went really bad, you'd always have eggs. And so those chickens are back there and you might be outside feeding them. Or, uh, you know, maybe last night you put on a facial mask and you didn't take it off before you went to bed and you're waking up and you're just taking it off while you drink. Uh, some coffee. But you're not doing all those things probably. Uh, you're here with us and we're really glad to have you. I want to thank you for coming. And really there is nothing better that you could do with your time uh, than to worship Jesus and then to consider his claims upon our lives. And so I do want to thank you for joining us this morning. It's great to have you. Uh, welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, uh, Redeemer continues to be a church. And what that means is that we are a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God. and We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah, and that he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so as his people, every week we gather together to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in that love that God has for us in Jesus, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. And so even during this season of time, we're looking for ways to gather together, whether it's online in, on the Institute or on the face tick or whether or not you're sitting out on the front porch or in the backyard or whether or not you're going for walks with people down by the river. Uh, we love to gather together uh, to read the scriptures, to pray with one another in order to remind each other the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love, as we remind one another of his love, we then become a people who are looking for ways to reflect the love of God, right, to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors who are here in urban and university Knoxville. And our hope is that in some way it would spill out into the entire world. That's who we are. We're a people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, we've begun this series on the kingdom of God as seen through the lens of the gospel of Mark. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to ask us this question. Are you willing to follow the king? Are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you willing to follow him? So with that in mind, let's look together. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of this, his word. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who isn't hidden. Uh, You're not silent, but you love to make yourself known so that we might know you and so that we might follow after you. And so it's our prayer now that as we attend unto your word, that you would attend unto us by your Holy Spirit so that we would see beautiful things of Jesus, that with great joy we might follow him in this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, growing up, it seems that everyone loved to play this silly little game called follow the leader. And we would love to play this game for a few minutes because it quickly would get old. But if you're my age or older, you probably remember marching around the playground and following the leader under the, sl- under the, you know, the swings and up the slide and singing, you know, we're following the leader, the leader, the leader, we're following the leader, wherever he may go. T-dum, t-dee, t-doodly-dee, today we're out for fun. And this is the game we play. Oh, we're following the leader, the leader, the leader, we're following the leader wherever he may go, right? And uh, we would do that and it would be great. And then it would get old really quickly. And following the leader was fun for the first chorus, but then someone else would want to be the leader. You would not want to follow the leader for long. And so what would happen is you would have someone who got a little recalcitrant and they would sort of walk up to the leader and they would stand shoulder to shoulder and they would essentially lead a revolution. They would look at the leader as if to say, I will no longer follow you y'all follow me. And that sadly is the story of humanity, right? We were made by God to follow him, but we didn't want to. And so we turned away from God and we began to lead ourselves. And the call of the kingdom of God is to return to him. The call of the kingdom of God is to return to the king. Listen to verse 15. Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so here's the question for us. Here's the question of this text. Will you follow Jesus? Will you follow him? Now to understand this call to repent and to follow after Jesus, you've got to remember the story of the Bible. And here's the way the Bible begins. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and everything that God made was good. Uh, It was right. It was whole. And God, in his kindness, made us, and he made us in his image, and he declared us to be good. Uh, Not only good, but actually very good. 
And what this meant is that we were in this right relationship with God. And by virtue of being in this right relationship with God, that relationship overflowed into all of our other relationships, such that there was a wholeness to the world. And we were in a right relationship, not only with God, but by virtue of that relationship with God, we were now in a right relationship with ourselves and with others and with the very creation. God was shaping everything we did, all of our relationships. And so God placed us in the garden, right, to, to care for it, to tend it, to work it, to till it. He put us there in the garden to plant and to actually harvest, to create and to build, to make art and to make music, to build cities and uh, to build universities, to play games and to make families, to create things, amazing things like airplanes and submarines. Uh, for Steve Zazu. Uh, but uh, he placed us there in the garden, right, to cultivate it. And when you think about the big story of the Bible, the garden was never supposed to just remain a little plot. It was never supposed to remain this small garden. It was meant to be cultivated and developed. It was meant to be tended and enjoyed for God's glory. It was actually supposed to multiply and flourish, the garden was supposed to push out and fill the entire creation. And this was going to happen by the work of our hands under the reign of God. And that really is the great grand narrative of the Bible. If you read the Bible, it begins in the garden of God in the book of Genesis. And it ends in the city of God in the book of Revelation. The problem with humanity is that we didn't want to follow God. We wanted to build and create in such a way that we would make a name for ourselves, in such a way that we would build glory for ourselves. We didn't want to create and build and live in such a way that would reflect the wisdom and the love and the goodness of God. We wanted to build and create for ourselves and for our own benefit. And in doing that, the world collapsed in on us. And because of this, there is no peace. Because of this, there is no wholeness. And that's what we experience in this world, right? There is no peace. There's no peace with God. I mean, if you think about our experiences, right? Religions are all at war. Because we haven't wanted to look to God we create our own gods and follow after them. If you think about your experience, there is no peace with God. Morality is now up for grabs. There is no peace with God. We live in this post-Christian, secular, Western society that now actually views God as the villain from whom we must be saved rather than the loving creator who has come to save us. And then the Bible tells us, sadly, that we actually live under his judgment because of our rebellion against him. There is no peace with God. There's also no peace with ourselves then, right? There's no peace internally 
because we don't feel accepted. We don't feel whole. We have separated ourselves from life by separating ourselves from God. And we see this, like counselors are overwhelmed. Secondary trauma is impacting all of us. There's a waiting list to see therapists. Antidepressants are just being dis- uh, prescribed over and over and over again. Opioid addiction is rampant throughout our city. We're confused about what it means to be a human being. We're confused about how to understand our place in this world. There's no peace inside. There's no peace with God. There's no peace with ourselves. And there's no peace with other people. I mean, sure, we all have some friends that we sort of get along with until we disagree about how to raise our children, right? We, uh, uh, if we look at the world, it's filled with protests. I mean, the whole world right now is protesting because of the ways that people have been treated, image bearers have been treated merely because of the color of their skin. Nations don't get along. They're constantly in conflict with one another, constantly breaking treaties with one another. Political parties can't agree about science or budgets. It seems as if rather than uh, agreeing to disagree, we actually disagree to agree, to agree. We can't get along. And when somebody tells us they're hurt, the first thing we want to do is say, well, it's not my fault. There's no peace. There's no peace with God. There's no peace with ourselves. There's no peace with others. And when we think about the creation, what we recognize is the creation is groaning. God had placed us in the creation to care for it and to tend it, to steward it, to love it, for it to flourish and teem. And yet the Bible tells us the creation is growing, groaning. It's groaning under over-harvesting. It's groaning under our pollution. Our bodies are actually turning against themselves through illness. And it seems as if sickness, sorrow, pain, and death just rule over us. We long for the day for sickness, sorrow, pain, and death to be felt and feared no more. And yet sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are the very things that we fear and feel on a daily basis. Those things seem to reign. There is no peace. And that's the kingdom of man in which we live. The kingdom of rebellion to God. And what is beautiful about the gospel is that Jesus enters into the kingdom of man. And in verse 15, he declares that the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is at hand. And so the question is, will you follow him? Right, will you follow him? Because this king, this king Jesus, is the king that Isaiah called the prince of peace. He is the one who will bring peace. Jesus is the king who will bring forgiveness. The one who has come to restore all things to God. The the one who is drawing all things to himself. The one who has come to judge the world in its rebellion and in its brokenness. The king that comes to heal. The king that comes to make the trees dance and the birds sing. The king that we sing of every Christmas who comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found. And so Jesus comes into this world and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. And what this means is that God has entered into the world in order to restore it to its creational purposes. And for that to happen, 
God's image bearers must first return to him. And that's what Jesus is preaching. He comes preaching, right? Verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent essentially means to turn around. And so what Jesus is saying when he says repent and believe the gospel, he's saying turn around and trust that Jesus is king. That Jesus is the restorer. That Jesus is our peace. That he is the one who brings peace with God. And by virtue of being at peace with God through Jesus, he enables us to pursue peace with ourselves and with others and with the world around us. And so he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And this kingdom of God is not merely a heart reality. This kingdom of God is not merely some future heavenly reality. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. He is saying that God's rule is beginning to be manifest on earth right now. Yes, the kingdom of God is about God's love flowing into our hearts and filling us. And yes, the kingdom of God will be consummated and fulfilled at the return of Jesus. But God's kingdom is now. As his love is filling our hearts and it overflows because his love is abundant. His love is overflowing and it overflows our hearts. And as it overflows our hearts, it fills the world, bending everything back to Jesus. And this is why we pray over and over and over again in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, a repentant life is a life that is praying for God's kingdom to come on earth. Right now. Just as it is in heaven. And therefore, a repentant life is a life committed to heaven coming to earth. Not just us going to heaven. You see, the call of repentance is this call to return to God and to follow him. So here's the question for us. Will you follow him? Will you follow him? And to follow him means that you will first repent. What is repentance? Well, our Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance saying this, repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after a new obedience. That's some doths and a lot of stuff there. But uh, what I want you to see is that repentance has two parts. Repentance begins when we grieve and hate our sin and turn away from it and return to Jesus. And so what that means is that repentance means that we've got to look at our sin and we've got to look at the sin of the world and we must hate it and we must grieve it. We must grieve and hate it because of what it does to us. We must grieve and hate it because of what it does to others. We must grieve and hate it because of what it says about our relationship with God. We must grieve and hate it because our sin turns us in on ourselves and away from God 
and away from our neighbor. And so to repent means that we must turn out from ourselves to him. To repent doesn't mean we turn in in grief and shame. It doesn't mean that we turn in on new, re- uh, new resolutions. To repent means that we turn out to Jesus. And as we turn out towards Jesus, he then leads us out into the world. And that's the second part of repentance, that we would pursue him in new obedience. And the reason why these two aspects of turning to Christ and then pursuing new obedience are important for thinking about our repentance because there is because there are two common mistakes when it comes to repentance. The first is that we often think repentance is just trying harder and doing better. Now trying harder and doing better, those are nice sentiments, but they're just not repentance. Because all trying harder and doing better is, is turning inward. I mean, think about it. How will you know what better is if you don't turn to the one who defines what is good? You must first turn to God and then follow him and live out of his strength and out of his gifting. And not only that, we turn to him because we've sinned actually against him. Right? I mean, think about this. If you were to sin against me, like let's say you lied to me, and then you just mailed me $20 and said, well, I've repented. Well, you did something nice, but you're not repenting in that moment because you're not coming to me. You're not dealing with the personal ramifications of what you have done against me. Do you see this? Jesus is inviting us to return to God, to return to him and deal with him And to deal with the implications for our sin against him. To confess it, to acknowledge it, and then to begin walking with him as he has called us to and invites us to. He is the one who forgives. $20 doesn't forgive. He forgives. And so he invites you to come to him that you might receive his forgiveness. The second mistake, which I think is really big here in Knoxville, is that repentance is just saying you're sorry. And that's what I think attracts many of us to Christianity because we think this is great. I mean, I love to sin and Jesus loves to forgive people who sin. So we should hang out. I'll keep sinning, you keep forgiving. But that's not repentance. Repentance turns with grief and hatred of our sin to Jesus. And out of love for him, we follow him in new obedience. Here's the question. Will you follow him? Like, will you follow him? And to follow Jesus is all about repentance. And you see this being worked out in the apostles in verse 17. Listen to this. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and what they do? They followed him. Verse 20. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You see, what Mark's trying to do is show us that repentance looks like following Jesus. And so they followed Jesus. Jesus called them to follow him. They followed him and he promised that he would then send them out as fishers of men. 
And we love this image of fishermen because we love this idea of evangelism as fishing and you set the, you set the bait and you reel them in and you count them out and you see all what you've done or whatever. But more is going on than just the fact that Simon and Andrew and James and John were fishermen. They were fishermen. But this is a prophetic echo. In the book of Jeremiah, God makes this amazing statement. He said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but it will be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Listen to this. Behold, I am sending for many fishers of men, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And when they catch them, what will they do? Jeremiah goes on and he says this, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can, make, can man make for himself gods? Man who turns away from God seeks to make their own gods. Are those gods? Such are not gods, Jeremiah says. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. This is amazing. Because embedded in the reality that the apostles were fishermen is this great promise that God was going to come and perform a greater work of salvation than the Exodus. That God was actually going to come into the world and save the nations. That God was going to gather to himself the world. And he would do that by calling fishers of men to himself and sending them out to make his name known throughout the entire creation. So that the world would know that he is the living and true God. So Jesus comes on the scene. He's baptized, sent out into mission. And what does he do? He gathers fishers of men to himself in order to send them out to make himself known to the world. But before they go out into the world, they must first follow him. You must follow him. And so the question is, will you follow him? That's what the apostles do. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Like them, will you follow him? And this call to follow Jesus is actually a challenge to the way every one of us is living. It's actually a call to change. To turn away from following yourself. And to turn away from following all those things that control you. And following him. And as you look at this, James and John, look at what they do. They leave their father to follow Christ. This confronts traditional cultures that say family is first. Jesus says family isn't first. 
I am first. Your family exists to follow me. I don't exist to follow your family. But not only that, Andrew and Simon, notice they leave their nets. This is a challenge to our individualistic cultures that tell us that work comes first. And Jesus says, no, your work doesn't come first. I come first. See, Jesus is the one who orders our life. And sadly, we tend to reverse it because we tend to think that Jesus exists to serve our family. That Jesus exists to serve our vocation. That Jesus exists to serve our country. That Jesus exists to serve our desires or to serve our economy. But if Jesus exists to serve those things, then those things are the goal. Those things are the God. That's not Christianity. The call of Christianity is that Jesus comes to us and he says, follow me. Will you follow him? Now, it's not that your family and your vocation and other things like the Clemson Tigers don't matter. Of course they matter. But they matter with respect to their purpose. They matter in that they are intended to reflect the king. Nations were intended to reflect the wisdom and the justice and the provision and protection of God. Families exist to reflect the kindness and the love and the hospitality of our Heavenly Father. Our jobs exist to reflect the creativity and the productivity of our God. Money exists to reflect the generosity of our God. Universities exist to reflect curiosity and creativity to reflect upon our creator and his creation and how to wisely live within it. But what we do is we tend to reverse all these things and bend all these things in on ourselves, thinking that family and job and money and nationality are the things that will define us. Maybe they're the things that will actually save us. They're the things that will make a name for us and prove that we're valuable and significant. But the reverse is true. They exist in order to make God's name known to the world to show the world what he is all about. And therefore, as Christians, we must reimagine our lives. We must reimagine the systems that we live in. We must reimagine our institutions in which we work. And we must reimagine them all through the lens of Jesus. And what that means is that we need to be creative with our resources. Not just our resources to sort of pad our 401k and renovate our house and help our children get into fancy schools. But we need to begin thinking about how is it that together we can steward our money, our time, our power, our knowledge, our relationships, our wisdom in the name of the king so that our neighbors would know him and enjoy him. And this happens as we support missionaries. But it also happens as we invest in things that reflect the values of the king and his kingdom. And if you study Christian history, one of the things you'll notice is that Christians, time and time again, are behind many of the greatest social programs of the world. Christians were behind public education. 
because they not only wanted their children to be educated, they wanted all the children to be able to read so that they could read the scriptures and know who Christ is. And though many Christians in our past, we failed to see the image of God and uh, people of color and things like that, many Christians were behind the promotion of the emancipation of slaves. And many Christians were there on the freedom trail helping people, uh, register, African Americans, register to vote at risk of their life. Why would they do that? Because they knew that their God was the great emancipator, the one who brought freedom. Christians were behind the formation of hospitals. Why? Because our God is a God who cares for the sick. Christians were behind orphanages because they knew that God is a God who cares for the orphan. Christians were behind soup kitchens and shelters because they knew that God is a God who cares for the weak and the poor. Christians were behind the YMCA and the YWCA because they knew that people, men and women, needed to find shelter and safety. And God is our shelter. Christians were behind mental health endeavors uh, that preceded things like Alcoholics Anonymous. John Wesley's famous penitent bands uh, were formed to help people struggling with, self, uh, with substance abuse because he knew that God is a God who wants us to be filled with the Spirit, not drunk on wine. Christians were behind many of the, um, of the public works, the, the clean water in cities, helping to promote clean water in cities because in many of the pre-modern cities, the water just made people sick. And so everybody drank Guinness so that they didn't get uh, digestive issues. In our own city, you may not know this, but in Knoxville, Presbyterians started the University of Tennessee under the leadership of Reverend Samuel Carrick, Carrick Hall. You may not know this, but Presbyterians started Knox College under the leadership of R.J. Cresswell, and they started it to educate African Americans in our region because private institutions in the state wouldn't do it. You may not know this, but Presbyterians started Fort Sanders Hospital, which is just up the hill, because they knew that God cared for the sick. As we think about our city, Christian businessmen were behind the renovation of Market Square, which has had a tremendous blessing on our city. Christians in our city have creatively thought about how to use their time and their resources to serve our city through things like Emerald Youth Foundation, which is a tremendous blessing to the city. Things like the Restoration House, helping single mothers get back on their feet, CARM and the Mission District, Following Jesus is costly. It's costly. But it is beautiful. And this is what Christians do when we begin to follow Jesus. Not just into the brokenness of our own hearts, but into the brokenness of the world. And as we follow him, we follow him through the wilderness to the cross where at the cross, we see the cost of his reconciling work, which is the cost of his life. And when we see that cost, we see the, the ramification of our sin. 
and we grieve it and we hate it because the effect is that our God died. But we also cling to it because it's our only hope. And as we cling to the, cry, to the cross, we cry out that his kingdom would come on earth just as it is in heaven. And then we begin to follow him, giving ourselves at great cost for him and for his kingdom. And so the question is this, will you follow him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love and thank you for your beautiful kingdom. Forgive us for having turned away and broken peace. And we pray that by your kindness and in your mercy, you would restore us to yourself. That with great joy we might follow you and that we might see little pieces of your heaven coming to earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.